Mark is a clinical psychologist who helped me overcome a traumatic injury. Mark is proof of two things. One is that you can try many different things in life before finding the one that suits you. And two is that you can overcome adversity and that you and you alone are in control of your future. It's your choice. That sends a shockwave up my spine and um, kind of compressed my one of my vertebrae. I learned to roll quite quickly. Oh, I love your friends. Forget <laughs> what I have learned is never give up. Never give up. At times, my motivation was far exceeded my skills and competency. <laughs> If they can do that, then, you know, surely I can do that. I do remember the surgeon that operated on me said, you know, the ball's in your court now. Um, I've done as much as I can do. Pillow, that can be a smothering device and very traumatic. Or for somebody that can be, you know, comfort. That you can change your world by changing your mind. And you can change your future by changing your mind. Bring us back to the start. Who are you? Where are you from? And I'm Mark Littlewood. Uh, I'm originally from Perth, Western Australia, although I don't have an Australian accent. Now live in New Zealand. Um, But between the, the Perth, Australia and New Zealand, I lived for over 20 years in the UK. All over the UK. That's where you're getting your accent. Yeah, I p- picked it up from that time. And also both my parents were English. So right, yeah. Living with parents, of course, you pick up theirs. <laughs> of course, yeah. I left Australia when I was 19. Right. Um, Is that on I- your own esteem? Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. I, when I was young guy, I wanted to get out of Australia yeah. as quick as possible. It's, it's a great place lots of opportunities kind of for some reason I had a pull to the European kind of lifestyle and I like snow and I like mountains and culture and so I wanted to get out of Australia quick as I could and in that process I looked for jobs which were good to travel with and good to get out of Australia yeah for example one of them came up was um to be a pilot but then I, I spoke to some pilots and said, yeah, it's really good for traveling, but you're, you're not really traveling and sightseeing and you, you don't really get to stay in place for a long time. And yeah, there's lots of perks with it, but there's also these negatives with it, etc. And so that kind of pulled me away because I had a, an interest in wanting to fly yeah. and, and be, be up in the sky. And um, the next one was uh, being a chef. Yeah. And so I talked to people about being a chef and the perks and the, the negative aspects to it. And I, I was just more and more pulled to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've always liked food and was interested in what my mum did in the kitchen. Yeah. And we were lucky we traveled and ate in lots of different places and cultures. And I, I just used to really, really like food. And so I thought, yep, I'll go down the, the, the chef route mm. and um, said, that's that's the way I'm going to go. Yeah, awesome. So I finished high school and then I did a year of a hotel management course, which was primarily to get some sort of qualifications that I could travel with. Yeah. So there was kind of front of house qualifications, bar qualifications, cocktail qualifications, yeah. maybe a little bit of food prep qualifications. And that was really just to get me you know, on a stepping stone to wherever I wanted to go. Yeah, so. can bring you anywhere in the world then with tourism and uh, the hospitality industry. 
Yeah, yeah. Exciting industry to be a part of when you're a young man. Oh, it's yeah. it's it's a fast industry, and yeah. it's you can do so much in it. You can travel widely. You, can, you don't have to travel very much. You can stay in your own backyard, and you can make lots of money if you want to, if you're really really keen and work hard and yeah. and lucky. But then you can also, you know, you don't because money doesn't mean you're necessarily successful. You can work in maybe the high end places which don't pay so much money, or you can just do the. The, the gourmet vans that are, are out now. So you, you can do whatever you want. You can yeah. find happiness in so many different forms. And um, that was really exciting for me. Well, I can imagine so, yeah. And you're in a new country, a new world, meeting lots of different cultures. And and as I was traveling, you meet the people who are traveling. And um, so that's kind of what pulled me into that catering kind of industry. So I, I wanted to get to the UK as quick as possible. And yeah. um, at that time... From what I was understanding, the the European scene was kind of recognised as, you know, if you want to be a good chef, you kind of need to go and work over there. Uh, so you had ambitions of climbing the ladder in, in that industry? Yeah, I thought, may as well give it a go. Yeah, of course. May as well give it a go and um, look to, you know, who were the star chefs. So I started to yeah. understand who these star chefs were and that kind of got me hooked into it yeah, and um, thought, oh, that, that seems quite quite interesting. And there was a little bit of glamour to it, yeah. um, which in reality, you, there was very little glamour. But um, you kind <laughs> of, you know, with that high-end food, you think, oh, there's high-end lots of things. Mm. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll see where that this can go. Yeah, cool. Was it everything you hoped for? Did you find yourself quite content when, when you were living in the um, well, living in, in in the UK, um, I was content with that way because um, the lifestyle, as you, you're aware, you know, the Ireland, UK, small countries, but even within those countries, there's different ways that people are talking and yeah. different, you know, cuisines that people make in different traditions yeah. in such small areas. You can just go around a corner and there can be something which is vastly different. And that was very, very interesting for me. And then you get across to the continent. You don't have to travel far to actually experience. You know, Complete di- different culture. Yeah, yeah. and different mm. languages and different yeah. architecture and so many things were different. So that was really, really interesting yeah. Um, you didn't have to travel far. And it was interesting in the kitchens as well. You know, I was soon learning that it's uh, the romantic view that I had in my mind is <laughs> um, definitely not there. And it um, really is hard, hard work. High pressure. A high, high pressure, yeah. hard work. It's relentless. Um, yeah. And um, I learned a lot, but um, I, I got out of it in my mid-20s. Right, yeah. And um, said, after spending years of 14 hours in kitchens and you know on your days off you're too tired to do anything else Mm. i thought there's got to be something else to life so i thought i've I've got to find my exit strategy here yeah so i found an exit strategy out what was that well that was i was working in the north of england at the time and I can still remember it to this day. I was um, on my break from a kitchen and uh, looked up in the sky and there was people paragliding. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yes, I would love to do that. And I thought, okay, that's that's where I really want to be. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be in four walls in a steamy hot kitchen anymore. I think I've learned some skills here, but actually I want to do more stuff outdoors. I want to be up in the sky experiencing all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. um, I slowly made my way out of the kitchen and made friends in the paragliding industry and 
did lots of learned to paraglide myself and did lots of paragliding and then started helping out teaching paragliding such a different gives you such a different perspective and view on everything that people don't normally see when you're up in the sky looking down yeah it's um i've got to admit some of my happiest times are when when you're up there and some of my scariest yeah. as well but when you're up there and you, you're pushing the limits of things when you're up there you kind of when you're working with nature mm. to actually understand you've got to push it a bit you've got to push it a bit and kind of find out what nature's all about um if you push it too much it it's going to it's so powerful it's going mm. to it's going to push you back so you've kind of got to you know, work with it, but also, you know, what what is all this? What are all these airflows and currents and what are these clouds doing? And I was really keen and interested in, in that. And, of course, some yeah. of that I had lots of motivation. And uh, at times my motivation was far exceeded my skills and competency. <laughs> but um, on many occasions I, I got through. But um, just having those experiences, and it's it's a, it was a form of freedom because you, you can take off in one place and land 20 30 50 100 200 kilometers away if you want or you can just take off and land in the same place um Mm. so just at that time up in the area it felt felt good good to me it was a good decision to get out of the kitchen for me i can compare it to i guess when when you go up the slopes here for skiing i'm not a professional skier or anything like that but there's just a feeling you have when you're up there it's something different Um, yeah and it just feels great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, when you're on the slopes and you're, you're skiing nicely and it feels good, it's feeling which is undescribable. It's kind of a bit like weightless but smooth. And I think many people have called it the flow state. Yeah. Um, and you can get that state from doing various things. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean going fast, but it's kind of like that smooth state which feels like you're, you know, on ice, but nice ice, not scary ice. Um, but, you know, just... You're in the zone yeah. um, in the moment. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And that's what a lot of us are chasing all the time. I'm just curious as you were speaking, are you sort of attracted to the little danger aspect of being up in the sky? Because yeah, you're quite vulnerable up there. You're very vulnerable. Does that excite you? Did it excite you? I didn't really find paragliding as an adrenaline sport. Mm. Don't get me wrong. There is a bit of a buzz and it is. it can be quite competitive, mm. um, very competitive actually. But for me, you know, when you take off and you fly, do something, oh yeah, that was great. I managed to get from A to B. But it wasn't so much like, you know, you're base jumping or doing a bungee yeah. jump. It's not that kind of adrenaline. It's quite, more for me, it was more about freedom and exploration rather yeah. than yeah. getting a big buzz. I got, I got the buzz from when I landed and realized, oh, that is such a great feeling, you know, that <laughs> reflection buzz. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's um, just the freedom of being able to take off and fly around and move like that rather than being stuck on the on the earth. Yeah. It's, it's great. Awesome. So, yeah, the thing you love, the time, your time in the sky ultimately led to an accident. Can we talk about that? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, certainly. So um, it was actually whilst I was teaching one day in it, it wasn't a dramatic accident by any means. Um, just on the lunch break, the, the students had been flying for a few hours and they were sat on the hill having lunch. And that was a time which I, I really 
wanted to just get up and have a fly myself, my own mm. personal flying. And it wasn't, yeah. a, you know, like a cross-country or going distance flying because you've got to come back within 30 minutes mm. and, and, and get back into teaching. But um, it was just, you know, playing around on the paraglider on a hill. And it wasn't a big hill. It wasn't a big mountain or anything. I was just playing around and um, just went to do a 360 and... I don't know whether I got a bit of a lull or... What's 360 before we go? Is that when you go completely up and around? No, no. So just just not going over the top, you would call that a loop. So it was just kind of like going around. So nothing dramatic. And I just went around and it's kind of like my glider kind of dived. Um, I lost the, the it was it stopped flying so it may have been a bit of turbulence from the hill mm. and I wasn't that high probably maybe 20 30 meters and of course the gl- <laughs> yeah but it's not like falling yeah. from a th- you know a couple of thousand feet um, and just in that time the glider dived and I just kind of slid into the hill and of course I thought I'll lift my legs up and because you've got you're in a harness and you've got bum protection, back protection off. But I actually came down quite vertical rather than quite horizontal mm. um, instead of kind of skidding across the surface. So I came down and kind of hit more vertical and bounced, and that sent a shockwave up my spine and um, kind of compressed my one of my vertebrae. And unfortunately, some of that vertebrae did damage to my spinal cords so uh, how soon after you hit impact on the ground did you know you were in serious trouble did you know you'd done damage to your spine uh, it was it was i was in shock pretty straight away because i tried to get up and i um, i just realized hey my legs aren't working i couldn't pull my legs up um to kind of stand up mm. from this and i thought oh okay and then straight away i shouted for the the other guy that was teaching at the time he was close yeah. by yep and he came and, you know, he said, you know, what, what's going on? I said, oh, you know, like, I can't remember exactly what I said. I can't feel my legs. I, I couldn't move. And um, we probably did the wrong thing. I said, hey, they're, they're going to cut my harness off me. So get my harness off because I want to be able to use it. Because <laughs> once they cut your harness off, you know, that's it. It's, it's yeah. gone. So, um, he, so you he didn't of, realize at that moment how serious it was. N- no, I, I, I knew my legs weren't working and I was in excruciating pain in my back. Um, but I knew that, hey, I'll, I, I really thought I'm going to be flying again, so I want to save my harness, yeah. so get me out of this harness, which in hindsight what was not a good decision. That I, put, I should have stayed st- as still as possible because that movement can make any nerve damage worse, spinal cord damage worse. Yeah. Um, but you do these things. Yes, in the moment, and you're not always thinking straight, and we, as humans we make mistakes, I guess. Well, we, we, we do, we do. We're, we're always making mistakes. Mm-hmm. It's just some of them are minor, and we, we get through some of them aren't so minor. Yeah, for sure. This is it, this accident is a massive life event. Um, can you talk us through the aftermath of, you know, um, you were rushed to hospital, you found out there was issues with your back. Mm-hmm. Can you talk us through that? Yeah. So on the hill, I got airlifted off the hill by a helicopter and I got taken to the the local hospital in the north of England. And um, at that time, I didn't really know what was what was going on. Um, I was in a lot of pain and I just really wanted them to get rid of the pain. Mm. Um, I was kind of always trying to kind of push myself, feeling like I wanted to push myself. It kind of felt like I'd been 
compressed mm. this pain that I had and I was always trying I just need to stretch my back I need to stretch my back and they just kept on giving me loads and loads of painkillers of all sorts of different type and to be honest it, it didn't really scratch the surface really um, the pain and then one, I, I can remember one doctor saying um, it's actually a good sign you've got pain so I kept on trying to focus on that um, yeah it's a good sign just it's a good sign positive. So, yeah, yeah yeah you just these little bits of positive you just kind of got to hold on to so yeah. it's a good sign it's a good sign and then from that um hospital i got um ambulanced across to another hospital and where there was a i think there was a spinal unit or a, a people that can professionals that can mm-hmm. look after me so then i went to that hospital and uh, i was in that hospital then for two weeks and in that two weeks i had an operation where they put a fixation which is some metal rods in my back from L1 vertebrae, lumbar one vertebrae that I'd crushed. So they put okay. some um, rods from L2 to T12, that's yeah. T12 thoracic vertebrae above, to kind of stabilize it and had a bone graft. And then um, from that hospital, which I was pretty much on bed rest, or just laying flat for two weeks. And But near to the end, they started to elevate me a little bit. Mm. Um, and I think just before I left the hospital, they put me into a wheelchair, um, and then I went to another hospital in um, Sheffield, which had a, a purpose-built spinal unit, and I spent three months there. Shit. So you were on the other side of the globe from your whole family, all your support system. You must have felt very alone sitting in a hospital for two weeks first and then another three months after that. Well, I wasn't. it was actually um, – I wasn't alone all the time. Um, my brother at the time, he lived in Ireland – Right, and so yeah. um, my um, girlfriend at the time and friends, they'd gotten in contact. I think they maybe rung my brother from my phone and he'd made arrangements to come over. don't think I saw him for a couple of days. And then I think my girlfriend at the time got in contact with my mum, who was living in Perth at the time. Um, my, my dad lived in Indonesia at the time and um, we were unable to, I think they were unable to get in contact with him. But my mum was... I don't know how quick it, but it was within a week. My mum was, uh, you know, beside me in hospital, yeah. and, and my brother was soon after. Um, yeah. But I had a good support network of friends, yeah. partner at the time. It's quite a close community, the paragliding. So all those people I worked with, um, they kept on popping over to see me. Um, but how that, important was that? Oh, massive, yeah. massive. Um, the, these journeys, these um, processes, you don't do by yourself, um, and even when you are by yourself. All the support that you've had in the past is still within you in some sorts of different forms. So foundations. Yep, your foundations and how then how you see yourself and how you see the world, how you interact with the world. So these foundations are, you know, what we go to, especially in times of need. And um, if we're lucky enough that we've got them, then they can be very, very helpful if we haven't got them we may need other things you know the, the immediate people around me you need that support network at some point a uh, doctor must have spoke to you about the possibility of being disabled losing the use of your legs was that spoken about the doctor who, who did the surgery and my mum was already there he actually never said to me that I can recall you're never going to walk again but he did say to my mum um look we don't think he's going to walk again um I, I can't. I don't know what his actual words prepare himself that he's not going to walk again, mm. um, 
Um, I wasn't necessarily told that by the people around me. I think that may have been expressed down the my line of the line of support that you know Mark might not walk again. But I, I just thought, hey, let, let's see what happens. Yeah. I do remember the surgeon that operated on me said, you know, the ball's in your court now. I've done as much as I can do. Give you a best shot. Right. And that's what I've tried to do. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. So you've made a great recovery. You, you walked up the stairs here today. So, um, yeah. And that's like he's just said, is probably down to your support system and your attitude towards life at that stage. All of that comes from, yeah, those experiences, the experience with the support neck, with experiences mm. with, you know, support that you grow up with. It all becomes embedded within us. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of one thing that I kind of realized actually going through the really bit rehabilitative journey. Um, you, you call on these things, not necessarily consciously that you're aware of, but you call on these past experiences yeah. um, and use them to help you to manage to form resilience to find ways around it to yeah. find solutions all these other previous experiences can be really really helpful yeah um if we are willing to try and use them try and see how we got over them they might not be similar experiences but the way in which we got out of them may be quite yeah. helpful for what we're in nowadays yeah, yeah. any current difficulties uh, when I had my accident with my finger you, you explained to me at the very start my confidence is back down to zero and you just have to build everything up from zero mm-hmm. again did you have a similar process or journey when when you had your accident definitely yeah, yeah. so to kind of give you an example um even just going to the corner shop promoted quite a lot of anxiety it's when you have a an accident and it doesn't necessarily have to be a big accident but when you have something which knocks that confidence in you knocks your self-esteem and then you don't feel so much in control you have mm. limited less power or feel you have got less power a little bit um, of doubt creeps in yeah mm. indeed you kind of got to just do things nice and gradually and even just going to the shop and buying a loaf of bread or buying the milk i had to do it to know that i could do it again yeah. It's, it's as if I had to kind of rewrite a new me. Mm. Um, there was the old Mark pre-accident, and now there's the new Mark, which I had to do every single thing again, from just going to the shops, from just buying a car and driving. And there's physical things, which I definitely do have to do yeah. again, such as, you know, including walking, but just the simple things, which you think it just, you know, it, it, you don't even have to think about. I'll just walk and do that or just go to the shop with you, even if you're in a wheelchair. You kind of have yeah. to do it to know that you can do it. So everything, everything, had to do everything again to make sure that I could do it. That's really interesting. You had to build a new persona almost. Yeah, mm. yeah. And people, yeah, you could call it persona. You could call it mental representation. You could call it image, self-image. Yeah. But you can't keep on going back to that. Well, you, I think if you go back to that old image, you're going to continually see the old images, for example, that Mark that was able to run around and walk, etc. you know, really cracked. But I had to kind of form that new image, that new mental representation, that new understanding. I mean, yeah. what is this person? And then use that new image to then go out and do those things in the world and life again. I imagine you must have had some dark moments in that time in, in the 
in your time in hospital especially but you've clearly turned it into a positive and seen some opportunities going forward oh yeah yeah definitely i had to, I, I, I yeah i can't there were some really 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 down times um i i do re- remember actually um partner i had at the time I, she didn't say this to me around that time, but she said it to later. Um, she was really concerned for me, um, so concerned that she thought she asked my friend, you know, what's going on there, and and they all, I, I think they might have been keeping an eye on me and mm. just keeping me busy. And um, she actually um, bought me some tomato plants to look after because yeah. she thought that would be um, a good idea. And actually, that was really helpful. Yeah. That was really really helpful. Um, and Maybe then, if you could take the focus off yourself and stop thinking about yourself yeah, and focus on the plant. Yeah, 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 definitely. Because if anybody focuses on themselves for an extended period of time, we generally do go towards negative right. aspects of ourselves. Yeah. Um, but you know, to take shift the focus and see what is out there, and you know, you can get that bit of relief, and that bit of relief, ah, oh, actually, that felt good, or I'm not mm. always thinking about that, oh, etc. Et so. Um, that was really, really good, and of course, the support network came in there. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah there were there were some dark periods. But um, and I looked at in various ways to try and help with those dark periods in various different things. Reading, reading lots because I had plenty of time in between doing <laughs> loads and loads of physio on my uh, my legs and walking. Um, yeah. Just you know how how do have other people survive uh, trauma? and difficult situations yeah. um, and it, that was really helpful to me because I realized I'm not alone there are people every day probably in every country going through similar if not worse experiences mm. than me and lots and lots of people are able to in some which way or form pull through it and yeah. that kind of said yeah to me if they can do that then you know surely I can do that yeah. So yeah. I just yeah, that gave me a bit of motivation. Just positive positive examples that can be done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they're they're all around us. Mm. They're all around us. We don't necessarily need to look in books or on television or or, or whatever. There's, you know, positive examples all around us everywhere. Yeah. We just kind of have to become aware of them or yeah. try to become aware of them. And I suppose when you're in that situation you are acutely aware of them and, and like you say, you're looking and reaching for something, something to hold on to, something positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, then I, I stopped taking a long distance view. I started taking more of a short distance view right. and just taking every day, right, I'm just going to get through this day and get through this week and make the most out of this. Mm. Because if you look at the trauma and look at how big it can become or how big it possibly is, then it can feel overwhelming. Yeah. Just as, you know, climbing a, a, a massive mountain can be overwhelming. But if you just take it one step at a time, and I, I still use that that motto mm-hmm. now, just one step at a time, yeah. you, you, you'll get there. Small steps. So true and so helpful. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So tell us about as you started developing your mind, reading, researching, looking for opportunities. What are some positive things that came on the horizon for you and some positive changes? And talk us maybe through your rehabilitation from that point. In the months, years after the accident, I I was still quite outgoing and I still wanted to go back to some of the hobbies, the activities that I did before. Luckily, my friends got me up paragliding pretty soon. 
It was within six months after my accident. I don't know how how quickly, but got they drove me to. I think it was actually um, the the coast, and um, I was able to sit in a paraglider harness. They launched it, took off, and I flew. I had friends which were really adventurous and just really, you know, do you want to do this? Yep, okay, we'll do it. And they should just push me off the hills. And, um, you know, whilst that can cause a, a bit of mischief and a few little accidents, um, it, it was really good. Yeah. It was really good just to know that I can get out there and do things. And, and that just gave me more and more motivation. And then I got involved in certain organizations and I, I was skiing, sit skiing, within a year and oh. um, that was a new freedom for me and mm. um, being back on the snow through lots of time and effort getting away to Europe in that and going up to Scotland and um, to learn to sit ski because um, I could ski and, and board uh, snowboard before my accident so really wanted to get back into that yeah. so yeah the world started opening up and then I actually got into kayaking white water kayaking that was um, quite a I think that was quite a traumatic experience for other people because um I, I started to get a little bit of leg move i had a bit of leg move and i could walk um not for long distances within a year um but i could kind of brace myself in a kayak mm. if i could get my legs jammed outside pushed to the edges in a kayak and um yeah friends would kind of get me in a kayak because it was just another kind of freedom being on a river or on a yeah. lake etc that was good um but what we did realize was, um, yeah, it was difficult. Once they jammed me into a kayak and put all these things in between my legs so they were jammed out, you know, if I went upside down, I couldn't get out. <laughs> and um, in the early days, I, I couldn't roll the kayak to get it back up. So, yeah, they were kind of, you know, quickly diving in and rescuing me and <laughs> <laughs> causing, oh, yeah, yeah, is it all right? And, um, yeah. But you kind of you just go with the flow. But I, I, I learned to roll quite quickly. Oh, I love your friends. Forget <laughs> friends, indeed. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, somewhere along the line, you got an interest in psychology, which is what you're doing today. Yeah, so um, a lot of the reading that I did was also trying to understand myself, and you know, where do I, where do people get inspiration from? Where do people get the drive from? Um, um, how do people in dark times, where does that courage, where does that tenacity come from? So I did lots of reading into philosophy, mainly Eastern philosophy, um, and that got quite spiritual. Um, and, you know, what is the consciousness and what is driving us and all that sort of stuff. And then that kind of led more into psychology. And, you know, what psychology can do at this time. And this was um, 2000, 2001. So reading about psychology and psychology has come on a long, long way in the last 20 years. And that kind of gave me a bit of insight. Like, you know, people were able to, you know, if they're thinking negatively, they could change that. If people were in difficult positions, how they made big obstacles smaller and more manageable, um, you know, breaking things down, making things easier. How how do people do that? Mm. How do people get through difficult positions um, and dig deep? I used to read a lot of books on um, the special forces, Um, and how those people can go further than when people are dropping out they just keep going 
Yeah. And how they can just keep pushing themselves, pushing themselves, pushing themselves. Yep. One thing that did come across to me is um, they're, they're not just unique people. A lot of us, the majority of us, have these skills if we're willing to search deep and find them. We've got that drive within us and we just need to search deep and find it and, and use it. It starts with a want, you know, you have to want. Yeah, yeah. You, you do have to want. And that's probably the biggest barrier for a lot of people is, you know, you've got to have that want to to actually do. And that's where friends can come in because they can sometimes drive the want, although sometimes that drive can be disabling if it's too too much of a drive. Yeah. You know, if they're telling you what to do rather than encouraging you what to do. and Yeah, that happens a lot with parents and kids trying to push them into certain sports. Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah that, that, that can happen. Yeah. And, and, you know, it can be the parents', the parents kind of motives which overrule the, the kids' motives. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, if you want it, we can find it. We can find those resources within ourselves. You mentioned the RAF. Were you involved in the RAF? So, um I got a scholarship through the RF, the Royal Air Force. I think this was maybe three years after my accident. The uh, RAF, do a, it's called the Douglas Bader Scholarship, and Douglas Bader was um, a disabled pilot in World War II. I could have some of these facts wrong. I think he lost a leg, but they managed to give him a prosthetic leg and he managed to go back up in Spitfires, I believe. And from that, you know, him being shot down and losing a leg, they kind of set up this foundation to try and help disabled people get into the air. So I heard about this and applied for the scholarship. I was lucky enough to get the scholarship and um, lucky enough then went to South Africa for, I think it was two months and learned to fly airplanes over there. I got my pilot's license, light light aircraft pilot's license and my, my my night rating yeah. um so i was able to get back up in the sky in other ways so um well done that was really really good it was another way of getting yeah. back into the sky do you think if you hadn't had your accident you might not have ended up in the raf well i wasn't actually in the raf it's just a scholarship so you, right. it's not like you join the raf and become a, a military yeah. person it's just a scholarship for anybody so anybody who's the skills yes yeah. so yeah the scholarship is just just kind of run by the raf right. but um the raf has uh, and promotes the RAF promote it and they get funding through the RAF but it's anybody anybody you don't you wouldn't like the people that got the scholarships none of them were in the RAF like yeah. me they were just you know people with ordinary jobs if any mm. jobs ordinary yeah. <laughs> doing whatever they yeah. had um some traumatic difficulty in their life that yeah. they were overcoming and then they kind of used the uh, the scholarship flying again to give people confidence yeah um to open up their horizons yeah so did it do that for you it did yeah it, it gave me confidence in traveling because i went to south africa mm. um meeting people of other disabilities as well getting up the airplane learning to study again because there's lots of studying getting your pilot's license oh, yeah. and you know even just all these things you kind of have to do again to again get that confidence mm. so it, yeah, it gave me lots of confidence just studying being able to sit down being able to focus on something being able to complete stuff being also told when you know i wasn't getting things right and um i had to change you know yeah. you don't fly that way you fly this way and you've got to say this and you've got to do that and this is the right way to do it all for good reasons yeah um yeah it was very confidence building 
It's all part of building your new identity. Yes. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Do you think you have two different identities? Like, is it almost like two different people before the accident and after the accident? Oh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I've got the, the two different identities now. I would say my, my identity is... Um, Amalgamation kind of, of both of those. Yeah, yeah. Definitely at the time during, you know, the, the early rehab days, there's a part of you which is always going, oh, I, I could be doing this, I could be doing that, I could have walked over there, I could be flying there, I could be doing this, so all these things. We go back to the past quite a lot. Mm. Um, it, it's kind of our foundation, our basis, which we kind of always going back to. Um, and there's actually lots of psychological theories on this now in many different aspects of psychology and um, that we go back to early experiences and um, those early foundations. Yeah. Um, so this time from now on, maybe you're going back to your rehab as opposed to someone else will be going back to something that maybe happened in their childhood. I think we're probably always going back to our childhood yeah. in some okay. which ways or form. Now, this is more kind of my approach to clinical psychology. I've done lots of reading and some of the, the models, the therapies I use, they based use attachment theory. I don't know if you know much about that, but they, they go back to attachment, which is the early years of our life form the foundation of how we see ourselves, the world and other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we keep on going back to it. So, yeah, it, it becomes the foundation of who we are. And then we just keep on building on top of that. Reinforcing now- those ideas and, yeah. yeah an analogy is it's kind of like the foundations if you look at the foundations of a house it's kind of the foundations of the house you know you get good foundations you can put a slightly skew with house on top of them and it, it'll work okay <laughs> you know with a bit of wind yeah it can hold up if you've got good foundations but if you've got poor foundations you can put a good house on poor foundations with a bit of wind. It's probably going to fall over. Yeah, yeah. So if you've got those good foundations... I appreciate the building analogies. Yeah. I've spent 15 years building. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get yeah. the foundations right and the, the rest just falls into place. Yeah, it's so important. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I like the way when you spoke earlier, you spoke about you saw someone paragliding and you thought, wow, that's something I love to do. And you pursued it and made it your career. And it looks like you've done the exact same thing with psychology you start, you're fascinated by the power of the mind and where you get all your strength from and as you got engulfed in that you've also done the same and made that your your career yeah yeah um it was it, it, it didn't flow as smoothly i'm interested in psychology i'm going to pursue that again um, i was using lots of self-psychology and psychology on myself and how i can uh, get the most out of my rehab and push myself but um got to the point where my rehab was becoming less and i was thinking about what am I going to do in the future and um, I actually looked at various things in which I can do and I actually did an apprenticeship as a joiner making <laughs> furniture yeah, yeah. Um, to be honest that's one of the hardest things I've done right working with wood is it's hard it's hard yeah. it's um it's Very rewarding oh, it's, it's so re- rewarding just you know all the different woods and the grains and the textures etc but i just you know it takes a long time to build up those skills and i, I did an apprenticeship three between three and four years mm-hmm. and um i just i just found it too hard and um not too hard i just knew that i would have to spend another 10 15 years to be half decent at it like most people probably but you know just getting the understanding that the chisel skills the hammer skills and because i was doing everything on a bench so it was all that and the, the guy that was i did the joinery with it was all like just saws hammers chisels 
bench vice. Yeah, we weren't using we, yeah. we weren't using so many machines except for like thickness planer, maybe a table saw. Yeah, um, but th- those things were actually because I was in a chair working from a bench I could do all the kind of hand tools mm. no problem but when it came to pushing big chunks of wood through a thickness and planer and that yeah. was still really difficult um, yeah. so I did look into other aspects of woodwork and did a bit of wood turning and wow. really enjoyed that Yeah. but um, just realised I'm never going to make any money out of this because there's <laughs> so many people in the UK who have retired all the time in their life got some their you know money left over and they're just using it as a bit of hobby and turning out unbelievable bowls and pillars and all sorts of stuff there's amazing craftsmen out there oh yeah and they're willing to do it for nothing oh yeah yeah so, yeah as a business model it's difficult to compete yeah. with that definitely yeah. definitely so i kind of thought hey you know th- I'm, I'm i'm late to the game here and these guys are just gonna be able to outmatch me and um, they're not doing it for the money. So I thought, you know, what else can I do here? And then um, the girlfriend at the time said, you know, have you, have you thought about going to university? Because I hadn't been to university. I've been to college, like technical college mm. through the hotel management course. And I went to college as an apprentice chef, but I hadn't been to university. And so the um, girlfriend said, you know, have you thought about university? So I looked into university and um, I looked at lots of different things. And um, I actually got interested in wanting to be a vet. And I looked into being a vet and... Um, I was still walking with crutches and calipers at this time uh, and not for very far. And um, they, they pretty much said, no, we, we, you can't be, we won't take on disabled people to be a vet because the animal's welfare is our priority. And, you know, so for instance, in a shed with cattle, you know, I can't jump out the way if I'm, yeah. you know, if I've got a needle and I've got need both arms for my crutches, yeah. you know, the animal's welfare is paramount. It can be a very physical very. Very physical, job, physical. Yeah. and so I, I understood that, and then I looked into the second option, and um, um, clinical psychology came up, mm. and so um, and this was uh, a newer person in the clinical psychology field, and they said, oh, you know, this is how you become a clinical psychology, and I was warned about how competitive it was, and um, then just said, all right, okay, well, let's see how that goes, and mm. just um, thought, how do I get into university to do a undergraduate degree yeah. in uh, clinical psychology. I had to do a, some courses to prove again that I could study. Right. So open university courses in the UK. Okay. So I had to do that for a year. And then I managed to get into a university and I went to Glasgow University then for four years. Wow. So you got a few, you tried a few different things and you were trial and error and had some setbacks and eventually found something that you felt you could really pursue and become very good at. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I, when I got into the university, I was actually felt a bit um, disappointed because the the clinical psychology, there's very little. At the, we, you kind of do it, maybe do it abnormal psychology in university, but there's so many other aspects of psychology and so many of the fields of psychology, which you tend to kind of, for an undergraduate degree, you tend to, to focus on it. So the clinical psychology route was still way, 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 way off in the distance. Um, and I was looking... You know, doing these and mm. psychology fields, perception, cognitive psychology, uh, linguistics, all ugh, there were so many of them. Can you explain for me and the listeners what is the difference between what is clinical psychology? Okay, what clinical. How does that change it? So, clinical psychology is 
really the field of psychology which looks at mental health, Mm -hmm. looks at the clinical aspects of mental health, whereas psychology in itself is a broad, broad field. It's it's a bit like saying, um, you know, you study medicine. So you, you go to university, and if you study medicine, you do like general medical aspects, you know, anatomy, physiology, drugs, maybe pharmacology, et cetera, or the yeah. way that the, the body works, et cetera, and then diseases. In clinical psychology, it's not necessarily looked upon as being an undergraduate uh, topic. Abnormal psychology, where the human psychology goes abnormal kind of starts to getting into mental health aspects um but the psychology field um it takes in for instance how we see things because what we see isn't necessarily what we perceive um and then how do we talk and then you've got developmental psychology as in how do we learn to talk how do we learn to understand the world how do we learn to use our body and when we're young so there's lots of different aspects of psychology group psychology forensic psychology occupational psychology social psychology how do we work in social systems so a lot of these things not necessarily the forensic or the clinical all these other ones you kind of learn about and they they become the foundations these are your psychological foundations yeah. and, and even though they don't they to me they didn't seem relative at the time they are really relative for instance you know you learn about how we are by we can form biases social biases how we learn to talk and then how that language influences the way we think everyone sees the same thing differently and perception for instance you can see a pillow but actually for a pillow that can be a smothering device and very traumatic or for somebody that can be you know comfort so in all these little things didn't really seem very clinical useful to me at the time but but they have been you know that foundation even after doing a doctorate in clinical psychology, you go back to those foundations yeah. um, in psychology. It, it was immensely useful. Yeah, it seems fascinating to me. All that whole, um, all those things you learned, the power of the mind, and reasons why people's perceptions, all those things. Yeah, it, it definitely, and um, you know how we use our mind. And there's that. There's the old. It used to be kind of a a negative saying to somebody, um, and you've probably heard it. Ah, oh, it's all in your mind. Well, it is. Yeah. Everything's everything's in our mind. Yeah. Everything's and when we say mind in our brain and our psychological emotional function, if it's not in our mind, if it's not in our psychological functioning, if it hasn't got to our brain, it's not there. And yeah. I can use the again the example like you can stick uh, pins and needles in my my feet because and um, because I can't feel parts of my feet and my legs. If the message doesn't get to my brain and then goes back. It hasn't happened. So when people say, you know, it's all in your mind, which kind of used to be a, a bit of a detrimental, a derogatory term, yeah. actually, it, it's it's true. Yeah. You know, if the information doesn't get to your mind, well, wh- where has it gone? That was a big revelation for me when, when I was visiting you, um, was just what's happening in our mind is often presented in our body. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And you showed me very, very simple examples, um, and I, was, I couldn't deny the facts. It was, it was blew my mind, actually. Uh, Good to hear. And that, that was one of the, the really big kind of revelations that came out to me through the reading and rehabilitation is that you can change your world by changing your mind. Yeah. And you can change your future by changing your mind. You know, it can, t- it can be hard work, but you can change your mind. You mm. can change how you see things. You can change how you perceive things and interact with things. But it, but it does take hard work. It's powerful stuff. And you must... 
having that knowledge, you must feel a lot more equipped to take on the challenges of life, knowing how powerful the mind is and your understanding of it. Well, I don't, yeah. Um, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Uh, all the challenges that everybody experiences are still quite difficult, whether it be financial challenges or health challenges or um, family challenges, relationship challenges. They're, they're all... It's, it's your Some ability the, to overcome the challenges. Yep. There's, yeah. um, there's still... I suppose they may become a little bit more easier, um, but... They are still challenges. They are still challenges. But, you know, what would a life be without challenges? So, you know, just to try to ride the wave and try to learn about it as you're you're going along. Um, Don't get things right all the time. And to be honest, I don't think I get challenges right more than others. But what I have learned is never give up. Never give up. That doesn't mean keep doing the same thing, though. (laughs) Because... Giving up can mean, you know, for instance, if your goal is to, say, be a clinical psychologist and you go down one route, which somebody says to be a clinical psychologist, you know, you need to go down this, you need to do that, etc. And if you keep hitting brick walls, well, open your mind. Is there another route? Is there another possible way to get there? Is there other ways that people have done things and been successful? Yeah. Um, so never give up in finding a solution. And sometimes that can mean just putting a process on hold, which is different to giving up. Because sometimes you need to put something on hold just to get a bit of space, to be able to reflect, just to kind of maybe draw on some of your past experiences or draw on from things which are going on around you. And quite often the, the answer will come to you, which is does if we just kind of, you know, okay, I need to put that on hold. Stop thinking about that for a little bit and I'll get on with all these other things in my life. I'm not going to give up on it. Yeah. I'm going to keep coming back to it. Um, you know, you must have had this with some of your work, you know, how can I find that solution? This isn't working, that joint or whatever, yeah. etc. Ah, oh, maybe, uh, okay, I'm just going to put that. And then you could be out in the street and you just see something. Actually, that would work. Yeah, 100%. That happens to me yeah. all the time. Yeah. 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 That rings and, very true. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the answers are out there and the answers are, are, are in us if we just give ourselves a bit of space sometimes. Hey, um, just to... Get back to your journey. Um, so your experience with your accident and your rehab must have... Did that stand to you when you started studying psychology? Um, I think it did. Do you draw on it in your work? Um, aspects of it. Yeah. Aspects of it. But um, I try not to you go back to it all the time. Mm. Um, and the main reason is it was my accident. And it, it happened to me, my past experiences with the support people that were around me. Um, and if I keep on going back to it, I'm going to be you know, pulling in all those biases, all those specificities, those specific details which were relative to me. So I tried to kind of get some of the, the more general, the global aspects of it. Because if I just keep on going back to you know, specifically how I overcome it, and use that for my work, well, then it, it may not be applicable or applicable yeah. or, or so you kind of, and it may not be adaptable to another person with the, the traits, the personality, the experiences that they have. So I try to pull out some of the more global things and then maybe it, it, utilize that in my work in a more yeah. global aspect. 
Because, you know, if I go keep on going back to my accident, it'll be me, like, preaching from my own gospel and everybody's got their own gospel. Yeah, I totally understand. But it might give you some core beliefs that you can overcome things. and Yeah, yeah. And it, it can give me some core beliefs in maybe what I need to do to help somebody, but not necessarily what another person needs to do yeah. to get over there. So, for example, as a clinical psychologist, we're all human ourselves and we get frustrated, a little bit agitated, maybe a bit anxious, a bit worried um, at times with how things are going. But, you know, sometimes if you just give you a bit of a, bit of self a bit of space, because a lot of those emotions is you thinking, focusing on you. Mm. But if you give yourself a bit of space and think, actually, you know, what's the, what's the other person going through? And that's yeah. who I should be focusing, not on me getting frustrated, yeah. not on me feeling maybe I'm not doing a good enough job. That's me focusing on me. I should be focusing on them. Yeah. What are they going through? So sometimes just giving yourself that bit of space, you know, a bit of breathing, and sometimes admitting, you know, I'm wrong here. You know, I've got to, I've got to not give up, maybe change tack. Yeah. Change yeah. tech, give them a bit of space, etc. Yeah, I just think it's very nice, uh, like full circle story. To, to you've gone through that accident, you use psychology to help you recover, and now you're using that to help. It's a very yeah. nice story. Well, hopefully, people can, as I have done in the past, I've gained motivation and determination from other people's stories, and hopefully, I can pass that on, and um, because that's a you know a part of the support network. Mm. Uh, so if I can pass that on, whether it be quite explicitly in, in maybe in this form or yeah. not as directly through my clinical work, because um, a lot of people, when I set up appointments, you know, they, they don't know anything about me. They look at my web page, et cetera, and get it maybe a bit. But it doesn't say, you know, I've, been, I've had this accident and this is my journey. But sometimes, you know, when people see, oh, all right, oh, you, you've had some difficulties in life as well. Hopefully that can kind of break down some barriers. Yeah. And, you know... Oh. I think it did for me, Mark, because I felt like you knew, you understood mm. some of the things I was struggling with because you've experienced them yourself. Yep. Not read it in a book. You've actually experienced it. Yeah. And I, hopefully, um, I think some of those things comes through from the non-verbal. You know, you can just mm. pick up a sense of vibe from a person. Hey, yeah. oh, this guy's maybe experienced. Um, but then again, you know, my difficulties are very obvious i walk with a walking stick now um got um my walking's a little bit crazy in a fashion some people say although some people think it's pretty it's pretty normal a lot of people say oh what have you done to your leg you know as if i've you know broken my ankle yeah um but um but don't get me wrong there are lots of people who experience lots and lots of non-visual trauma yeah non-visual trauma and that's a lot of lot of what goes unrecognized in the world mm. and that's mental health issues yeah for sure yeah i think it should be commended for what you're doing and so you're working in acc which is uh, specifically um, injury recoveries and injury rehabs so n- now i um i used to do private work and i used to do acc work um and acc is kind of like a kind of like an insurance, kind of like a government scheme, although people say it's not directly affiliated with the government. I don't I don't know, could have it all wrong. But um, it helps people in, in two kind of areas. It helps people who have had an accident. So anybody who's had an accident in New Zealand can get their uh, medical inputs 
uh, rehabilitative input for free. And that includes psychological input. So I do work uh, in that area, which is where where we come to me. But then there's also another aspect to ACC where it's called the um, the sensitive claims process, and that's anybody who's experienced an inappropriate sexual act, sexual trauma, yeah. in their their life, uh, and that can be one event to multiple events, yeah. etc. So um, I I do those that type of work. Um, a, a big part trauma, whether it be physical trauma, accident trauma, or Sexual trauma is, a, is a primarily what my work is. Yeah, well done for doing what you're doing. You're giving back to the community and helping a lot of people overcome really difficult issues. And I hope um, coming on this today and telling your story and your journey will also maybe inspire someone who's in a difficult period and they see your thing as a blueprint of how they can get themselves back on track. So yeah, thanks for coming on. And you're yeah. welcome. And I hope it's been helpful to you and to the people. Yeah, yeah, great. That's, that's part one done. No problem. Um, Thanks again, Mark, for sharing your story. I have no doubt that this will be useful or helpful to somebody out there. Slow down today. Go down to the water. Wash those doubts away.